Thank you for that good music, good songs. We're back in 1 Corinthians today, chapter 13. And we're uh, coming to the end of this uh, section that we've called the behaviors of love. We're looking at verse 7 today. And uh, we've likened this to a, a diagnostic uh, list that uh, helps uh, Paul, the doctor of souls, to figure out what's going on with us. And we remember he's writing to a church where there was lots of uh, dysfunction. And so he, he gives this diagnostic about what love looks like because with all the difficulties at the church, Paul identifies this issue of lack of love as their fundamental problem. So let's, uh, let's consider what he has to say. We'll read these verses again. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And then the verse for today, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So, let's, uh, as we've been doing, let's just work through and reflect a little bit on each of these uh, qualities that, that Paul talks about. Love always protects, says the Apostle. Now, right away, if we're looking at this, and you may compare different English translations, and you'll notice uh, some difference and divergence on this first statement, and uh, the divergence is something like this. Uh, there are times when this word, this verb, is best translated as endure or bear with, bear up. Uh, and I would say probably the majority of translations have something like that interpretation. The difficulty is if you translate it as endure, then the first statement in this verse and the last statement appear to say the same thing. And so that's why uh, 
the New International Version that we use here translates it always protects and it chooses a second meaning which this verb sometimes has which is to cover, to keep confidential, to pass over in silence. So <clears throat> we, uh, we face this choice and, and I mean either one is a true statement but you know if it's endure or bear with then the idea is that love puts up with lots of stuff. As uh, Fido here is putting up with the irritations of his little friend. Well, that's true. Uh, that's a true experience we have sometimes, right? Where we find that we grate on one another. People grate on you and Part of love is learning to put up with, to bear with those kinds of situations. I think, however, that we do better to follow this idea of, uh, of protecting, of keeping confidential or passing over in silence. Last week, we noted that uh, Paul says, love does not rejoice in evil but rejoices with the truth. And part of what we talked about there is that problem of gossip that we tend to enjoy hearing a, a bad report and then we enjoy even more passing it on, right? So, <clears throat> so that's a danger. Love doesn't do that. Instead, what Paul says is that love always protects. It... it how shall we say? Love protects the weak points of the other person. Now, some of you may be thinking, I have no weak points. <laughs> but nobody else thinks that, right? <laughs> the reality is we know that everyone has the weak points. And, and love, well, love commits to protecting the weak points of the other. Uh, Peter has a, a, a similar kind of statement when he says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, uh, that's important because as we said, gossip likes it, an evil report. Gossips enjoy that, passing it on. So we need this challenge to protect the weak points of one another, or as Peter says, to cover over a multitude of sins. Having said that, we also need to say, but not necessarily all sins. Say, well, how, how do we sort out the difference? Well, part of it is, I think we need to say, uh, that love does not cover flagrant sins, sins which are particularly destructive, whether to the person who commits them or very frequently to other people that are involved. <clears throat> Paul himself gives an example of that in 1 Corinthians. So if you go back a few chapters to chapter 5, we find out that there was an example of 
a number of examples, actually, but in chapter 5, there's an example of flagrant sexual sin in the church. What does Paul say? Well, he says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. We think likely it was a sexual relationship between a man and his stepmother. And Paul says even the pagans don't engage in this. And he says, here's the problem with the church. You are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Well, there's there's no covering here, right? Paul's not contradicting what he says later about love in chapter 13, but this is a case of flagrant sin that is potentially destroying the whole church because they're not responding well to it. We uh, were facing a challenging situation in the church in America today in many, many quarters. Uh, A decade or more ago, it, it kind of surfaced first in the Roman Catholic Church, and that was the question of clerical abuse, right, which had been hidden uh, for years and years, but it began to surface. And then some, some Protestants kind of said, well, yeah, right, it's the Catholics that have that problem. And uh, now, the last 10 years, there is a rash of such behavior that is being exposed in Protestant circles. And Uh, I mean, some of you know this just from your own reading and so forth, but there's not a week that goes by that there is not some fresh surfacing of abuse, uh, often by church leaders, unfortunately, Uh, emotional abuse, Financial abuse, authoritarian abuse, and, yes, sexual abuse. And, and it's, it's very discouraging. <clears throat> and the way some churches have responded to this in the past is just what the, the Roman Catholic Church did. And that is to try to cover it up, to uh, push some of these uh, abusive leaders quietly on to some other church where they repeat the same pattern. And uh, uh, that's not what Paul's talking about, friends. When he says love protects, when Peter says love covers the multitude of sins, it's not covering that kind of stuff. And Paul's own example is to identify it and call it out. That's That's important because gospel people are supposed to be people of truth. So, as is often the case, we have to listen to the words of Scripture in their full context. And that means we have to to balance out what's being said and we have to use discernment to understand how it applies. 
But the basic principle is that love always protects. Love always seeks when it can to guard the other person, even in their weakness and failure. Secondly, Paul says, love always trusts and it always hopes. Now, I'm putting those two together. There's four statements in this verse. Love always protects, it always trusts or believes, same word, and it always hopes. Let's put them together because I think they are very similar, right? Trust is confidence in God, confidence in the promises of God. Believing what he says and acting upon that. And hope is very similar. Hope, I like to say, is faith and trust which is turned toward the future. So God today calls us to trust him because his word is true and he fulfills his promises. And God calls us then to hope for the future, which is not just wishing, right? It's, it's this confident expectation that God is going to continue to be who he is, he's going to continue to care for us, and we rest in that, and we look with expectation for what he's going to do in the future. It always trusts and it always hopes. Why? Because love believes the power of the gospel and it looks for a better future. Well, see, there's lots to get discouraged about in the world. You know that. Lots to get discouraged about. And uh, yes, there is a lot to get discouraged about in the church. That's part of what we're seeing in our own, the American church, right? Lots to be discouraged. But it is... I think it's part of the devil's strategy to get our mind fixed on what is wrong. To see what the enemy is up to rather than to keep focused on what God is up to. And our faith and hope says that the victory belongs to Jesus. Love believes that. It believes in the power of the gospel. Love faces the imperfection of others. And it says, you know what? God is at work. His spirit is present. And and God is going to continue to do his work. And it, it looks for, it expects... That God's word and God's spirit will triumph in the lives of others. It trusts in that. It hopes for it. So once again, let's, let's balance this out. On the one hand, that does not mean that love is naive. That love simply whistles in the dark. I don't know if you can uh, read that little cartoon I kind of liked it. This is especially for Beth Krauss, uh, who is the, the big juicer, I think, in our church. Uh, yeah, he, here's some uh, fruit and vegetables that are sounding kind of naive. 
The one says, uh, looks like we're moving, guys, as a couple of them are being dropped into the blender. And the one in the blender says, are you my new bowl? Well, uh, yeah, until the switch goes on, right? And he gets turned into a smoothie. Well, that's naive to look at that. And, and sometimes Christians are naive in the name of love. Unrealistic about how things are. So, so love's tendency, we might say, toward naivete gets balanced out by the realism of the biblical teaching about sin and the power of sin in our lives. Right? So we're not, we're not called to be naive. That's what happens to people who get caught in a phishing scam on the internet, right? They're naive to believe some things they shouldn't. Love is not naive. Love doesn't whistle in the dark. Love doesn't believe against evidence that things are better than they are. Love is realistic. But on the other hand, love is not cynical. Cynicism is the inclination to believe that people are motivated purely by self-interest. And I think it's one of the marks of our age. Of, uh, it's certainly a mark of, of what's called post-modernity, that people are cynical, that, that they say, in effect, yeah, I hear you, but what is it you really want? What is it you're really after? And we tend to be cynical on all kinds of fronts, right? Cynical toward politicians. They give us a lot of reasons to be cynical. Uh, we can be cynical about our employers, uh, about teachers. There's a young man who is starting off on the road to cynicism kind of early. Uh, he may have been disappointed in various ways, but he's going to look carefully at the world. Well, it's not bad to live, look carefully at the world, right? Because that's, that's what the Bible calls discernment. So love is discerning. It's not naive. It's discerning, but it's not cynical. Why? Because love hopes. It always hopes. The cynic says uh, people's motivation is not what they claim it is. And if you're not careful, see, you even become cynical about God. Well, sure, the Bible's got a lot of great promises, but look at my life. Right? Sure, the, the church is supposed to be a place where the love of of God and Christ is demonstrated, but you should see my church or the place where I used to go. I don't even go to church anymore. There's many, many Christians today who are caught in cynicism about God, about other believers. Uh, I've I've been helped by the uh, writings of Paul Miller. I've mentioned him before. He's the head of See Jesus, 
and uh, <clears throat> lives right over here in Blooming Glen. Uh, but Paul makes a point a number of times in his different books that, that we're not called to be cynical. That is a real danger, right? And, and what Paul comes back to is the biblical statements that, that Christ loved the church and Christ loves the church in spite of the fact that we often fall so short of what his will is for us. And you see it in Paul. I mean, Paul is straight out in this letter where he writes about love. He says some very tough things to the church in Corinth because they have some big, big problems. But he starts out that letter with this extraordinary confidence, and he calls them the people who are saints, who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And that's the root of what Paul thinks about the church. It's the people who have been chosen and called to be united with Jesus, and so he is a man of trust and hope in the gospel. And we need to be as well. On the one hand, we're not naive. On the other hand, we're not cynical. So, uh, love always protects. It always puts the best construction on particularly other people and situations that it can. It always trusts and hopes. Not naive, but not cynical. And then the last thing Paul says is, it always perseveres, which simply means love doesn't give up. It endures. Well, one of the greatest illustrations of perseverance from the last century, the 20th century, of course, was Winston Churchill man who experienced a, a lot of personal and uh, political setbacks, <clears throat> but continued to press ahead relentlessly. And eventually, when the Second World War opened up and all of Churchill's warnings about the danger of Adolf Hitler came to fruition, suddenly The British people needed someone they could count on. Who was it? It was Churchill. And uh, especially in those early years of the war, when most of Europe had fallen and and Britain was the the standout uh, country that remained and resisted uh, the Nazis, uh, Churchill in some ways carried the whole nation on his back. Extraordinary perseverance. Well, Paul says, love does not give up. And it's very important for us to come back to and try to get our, our heads around. Why is it that love never gives up? Why is it important to say that? Well, because living in love is hard. The cultural understanding of love is that love is easy. 
See, love is easy because love is about chemistry. Love is something that happens to you. You experience it, and when you experience it, the fireworks go off, and, and loving is easy. Yeah, but then there's reality. The reality is that loving is usually hard. It's hard. Why? Well, because you and I have limited resources. That's one of the reasons. What did COVID show us? Well, a lot of stuff, actually. But one of the things it showed us is that, that our medical professions have limited resources. Is that fair to say, George? <laughs> uh, limited resources. We, we experience shortage, shortage of hospital beds, shortage of staff to care for those who are ill, and shortage of strengths among those who were available to care for people. Limited resources. All right, so what about love? The answer is that we have limited resources there as well. All right, so the, the young mom who is <clears throat> got three little children in tow, and the youngest one is sick and crying through the night, and then she still has to get up and tend the other two in the morning? What about love? Love has limited resources. Doesn't mean, don't mean to suggest that, you know, a mother, thank goodness, runs out of, doesn't run out of love. But, but the challenge of loving in those situations is immensely draining. Why should we think it's any different in church? Caring for one another. Seeking God's best for one another. By the way, that's, you know, that's my shorthand definition of what love is. It's seeking God's best for the other person. That's hard. And we have limited resources in ourselves, which is one of the reasons that trying to love and learning how to love is, is something that drives us increasingly back to God and back to the Holy Spirit, asking for the grace and strength of the Spirit to live the way we should. Living in love is hard because of limited resources and, well, yeah, here's the other problem, right? That what love experiences frequently is resistance. Not everybody wants to be loved, at least by you, <laughs> or at least by me. I had uh, the blessing of having pretty good, real good, real good parents, right? Not perfect, but good parents. I knew I was loved. 
But as I look back on my teenage years, I, I realized that there were many times when I resisted love. Why would I do that? Well, the Bible has the baseline answer, right? I did that because I was a sinner and am a sinner. I resist, I resist love. Resisted the love of my parents. And yes, I've seen it in my kids, some too. They're, they've got that resistance going. And what we realize, if we know the biblical story, is that what's true of us as children or true of our kids is true of all of us in our relationship to God. We resist. That's what it is to be a sinner, is to resist God's love for us. But what does, what does love do? Love perseveres in seeking the best for others, even when they resist. In fact, that's, that's one way to summarize the gospel. The good news is that though you and I have resisted the love of God, God has persisted. His love has endured. Here's what Paul says in Romans. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still sinners, pushing back against God, resisting his will in our lives. And God still showed his love. And he showed it in giving his son to die for us. That's persistence, huh? So Jesus came and he endured. The book of Hebrews says... For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured. It's the, it's the same word that Paul uses in describing love in the verse we're looking at. Love perseveres. Love endures. Jesus endures. Even though there was this extraordinary resistance to his love. That's part of the gospel story. John says, Jesus came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. Let alone the, the Romans who crucified him. His own people did not receive him. But he endured. He didn't just endure the rejection but he endured the consequences, which meant that they plotted his death and the Romans took over and nailed him to a cross. And he did that because love always perseveres, doesn't give up. Well, that brings us into this question. At the end of all this diagnosis about what love looks like, the question is, how do I learn to love? 
And they emphasize learning because, see, it's not, it's not something that just happens to you. It's not this romantic notion of love as chemistry. It's something I learn to do. How can I learn to love? Well, in many situations, maybe in all situations, you learn to love by experiencing love from someone else. That's how you learn. Children learn to love first by experiencing the love of their parents. If they don't, then it sets off a bad chain. Right? Children who grow up in abusive situations are likely to repeat that in the next generation and the next generation. Why? Because you learn love generationally and you learn the opposite of love also generationally. So these bad cycles get started. But we learn to love by being loved. But having said that then, we have to say, well, the, the best way to learn love is to experience the love of God. God's love is the source of all other loves. So we learn to love by experiencing the love of God in Jesus Christ for us. John the Apostle says, we love because he first loved us. We experience God's love to those sinners like us who resist it, who say, I want to run my own life, I want to do my own thing. Don't bother me, God. And God persistently loves us even though we're living in rebellion, even though our sinfulness is worthy of destruction. God says, my persistent love for you is so great that I send my son. And all that rebellion gets placed upon Jesus. He experiences the rebellion of the human race and also the judgment of God. And it's when we receive that love, when we acknowledge that we're the, we're the sinners who haven't been loving, we receive God's gracious forgiveness, the free gift of life in Jesus, that then we are in a place where God can work in our lives by his Holy Spirit and teach us how to love. We've talked before about uh, becoming a Christian is entering into the school of the Messiah, right? In the school of the Messiah, the overall lesson is always about love. The love of God for us in Christ Jesus and learning how I can now not only receive that love, but give that love. Yep, that's how we learn to do it. So let's pray. And uh, let's, uh, let's receive God's love and grace afresh. Because we always need it in a fresh way, right? Maybe you've never received it. Well, you can 
pray along with us and receive it for the first time or the hundredth time, uh, whatever you need. Let's pray. Lord, we, th- we thank you for your love. We experience so much in this world that doesn't look like love, doesn't feel like love, and we often give to others a lovelessness as well. But you, God, have been faithful. You've been merciful. You've been extraordinarily persistent to love a broken and fallen world. And you gave us even your son and the gift of life that he gives by his death and resurrection. This morning we come to you. We say thank you. We receive that gift from you in a fresh way, the gift of new life. And God, as we experience your inflowing love, we want to be people, we want to be a church that lives in love. Will you help us to do that? Help us to keep Jesus in the forefront of our minds to be good students in his school, to be more like him. And with thanksgiving, we pray to you in his great and powerful name. Amen.